we all know that the Bible talks about Christianity and it talks about Jesus. And so uh, do we just believe what Jesus is, you know, do we believe about Jesus because that's what the Bible says? What about the objections? Like there is no evidence outside the Bible uh, to confirm what you as Christians believe. You just have to have faith or something like that. Well, we want to make a case uh, not using evidence found in the New Testament that Jesus not only existed, but also is God. And a significant case for that can be made. And joining me is a repeat guest of mine, Jay Warner Wallace, cold case homicide detective. Many of you guys know, wrote some amazing, incredible books, Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith, the new one, which just came out yesterday, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects Him. Uh, Jim, thanks for coming on and joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we are trying to make a case um, without, and it's, it's difficult to do that sometimes, right? I mean, it's not just that um, we sometimes want, like, people have, have a misconception about what evidence, what counts as evidence. And right. pretty much everything counts as evidence in criminal trials. So I, a lot of times what we're doing in cold cases is we're just looking in places where maybe you would not have thought to look the first time around. And that's what we're trying to do in person of interest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, what even counts as evidence? We have a show on that. Uh, as I think I mentioned, this is your fourth time joining me on yeah. the show, talking about your book, Friends of Faith, was one interview also on how to teach and train students, prepare young people for the future. And then you came on just to talk about what even counts as evidence when we approach right. the question of evidence for God and evidence for Jesus. So maybe encourage those listening or watching, go back and check out that interview. That was a good one as well. So uh, one thing I love about the book, and we're just going to jump right in. Okay. is um, is is kind of how you set this up and how you do apply the skills of a detective to looking at Jesus. And so you you kind of uh, maybe use a unique situation where we always think of crime scenes as like, okay, well, you have a murder weapon, you got fingerprints, and you figure out who is the murderer. And what you use here is a set of skills uh, that you apply for a no person, no body, no evidence, no body case, right? Where there's no crime scene, there's no body, there's right. no evidence, yet you are still able to solve these cases. And so you kind of walk through one of those cases in the book. So maybe just to kind of set up how we're going to approach this conversation today, what is the way in which you approach these sort of cases as a detective? Well, this is typically the kinds of cases where maybe somebody kills a business partner or kills a spouse and claims that, yeah, I don't know what happened to this person. They just, they ran off. You know, maybe I had a fight with my wife last night and she drove away and she never came back and I have no idea where she went. And, and this is initially taken as a missing person case. And if the person's convincing enough, and the situation is specific enough where the investigating officer who was first assigned the case believes this guy, well, they may not work it right away as a murderer. And then I've got cases that maybe go five, six years before anybody says, you know what, this is a murder. And, and so for whatever reason, now it's being reopened as a murder case. And I've got no crime scene. No body ever was recovered. Um, as a matter of fact, sometimes these people will move or they'll remodel their homes. No one took a photograph of the house when the night that, that she went missing. So what do I really have here? Well, I don't have nothing in terms of crime scene evidence and I have no body. So how do you make a case like that? Well, what you typically do is you, you know that if it is a murder, on the day she went missing, something bad happened. It's uh, something explosive happened. He burst out in anger. Something happened that accounts for her disappearance. Right. And it's like a bomb went off. And every bomb is preceded by a fuse that burns up to the point of detonation. After that bomb explodes, you've got stuff all everywhere, right? From the bomb shrapnel all over the blast radius. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to examine and investigate the fuse and the fallout. Because there'll be clues in the fuse and the fallout that'll point to the felon who did this case. Who did this did this murder and so that's what we we do in those kinds of cases and i've illustrated one of these in the book uh i've changed some of the details because I, that's a case that is pretty it's it's the people who know the case my cases will recognize the case but for mm -hmm. the most part i've tried to change it enough to protect people who really don't want to be in a book so yeah. <laughs> so i do that but but all i try to do is walk you through that case investigating the fuse and the fallout and then showing you how we could do the same thing with history, investigating the fuse that leads up to the common era and the fallout of the common era to discover what is it, who is it that's responsible for the inauguration of the common era. And what would that tell us about that? What kind of person could change all of history and could account for all of the conditions we see in our world today in terms of cultural advances? And, and could you find his fingerprints in both the fuse and the fallout that would identify who that person is? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about, this fuse and fallout, trying to see what 
lead, led up to where Jesus was and then what happened after that fact. And hey, if this sounds interesting to you, uh, you can subscribe. Check it out. There's a lot of interesting thing here. With Our goal today, me and Jim, our goal is to help you understand there is good reason to believe that Jesus existed, that he is God, that he still matters, and then hopefully learning to answer some of those common objections against Jesus, as well as making a strong case to persuade others that Jesus really matters as you faithfully live out the Christian worldview today. So we want to take some of those objections. If you have them, you can comment in the live chat and, and answer some of those objections and questions that you have. Now, Jim, what I think is a, maybe a starting point as well uh, that, that maybe is a difference here is at least in the case that you, how you described it here, is it happened in the year 2000. You're investigating it maybe 10 or 15 years or so later. Uh, you can still go back and talk to the eyewitnesses. When it comes to Jesus, you can maybe have the same framework, but you can't really talk to the eyewitnesses. So how, how is that maybe dim, uh, different? Does that create a problem applying this technique to Jesus? Well, there is no doubt that being, having access to eyewitnesses would help, uh, but that's direct evidence. And you don't always need direct evidence in order to make a case. As a matter of fact, my cases are largely not with direct evidence. If you wait 30 years, I'm, some of my cases are 30, 35 years old. Well, those witnesses have, have passed away. And not only that, the people who interviewed them have also passed away. So now I've got no access to either the witness or the report writer to go back and say, well, why does this discrepancy appear to be in these two reports? Right. It's very much like the Gospels. But again, that's not that's that's if you were relying. I'm I'm going to go ahead and just start the thought experiment. Let's go ahead yeah. and just eliminate the Gospels altogether. Let's imagine a world in which every Gospel, every New Testament manuscript, every copy of the New Testament has been utterly and completely, without any exception, destroyed. So now you've got, okay, I've, I've eradicated those silly Christians because I've removed and eliminated all of their scripture. So now we have an empty crime scene, kind of like our nobody missing, right? Our nobody right. murders, where we have nothing in the crime scene. I've eliminated all that stuff. Could you just, just the fuse and the fallout, reconstruct the story of Jesus even without the New Testament? And I think you'll find evidence for Jesus in, this, in, in unusual places and, and in such unusual places that it really demonstrates that he's something more than just another historical figure. And that's really the point of the book. I mean, I'm not just looking for places in the fallout that he's had a huge and deep impact on. I'm looking for those places in the fallout where I could actually find his the information and reconstruct the story of Jesus in its entirety. You know, there's a lot more in terms of what uh, has changed about our world because of Christ followers and Jesus than what I've listed in this book. But I'm looking at those aspects of culture that are where I can find clues, where I can find uh, the description of Jesus that and, and why he accounts for this change. So that's what I focused on in the fallout. Now, when we, we're going to get to the fuse and the fallout and see exa exactly what are examples of that here in a moment, but I kind of have one more thought I want to offer as an objection, and it's this. is yeah. um, This sounds maybe like post hoc, like you are a Christian, mm -hmm. you believe that Jesus matters, and now you're going back mm -hmm. in history and you're trying to find things to make him look like he matters. So you believe this person's yeah. the murderer, you're now going back and trying to find things to make him look guilty. And sure, sure. if that's your intention, you're going to find things that make him look guilty. And so uh, how is this like that or maybe different than that? How well, if there's a suspect who committed a crime in the past, I can certainly investigate the evidence to see if I, you know, he looks guilty. Now, here's the other question. If there's some other potential suspect, do you really think you can establish the evidence for him if he's not guilty? My point is, it's not like you could take every single human on the planet and establish a good evidential case that links him to the murder. Yeah. As a matter of fact, most of the evidential cases you would establish would eliminate people as candidates for the murder. But they will incline one if he is evidentially the person who did it. Yeah. So my only suggestion is, okay, look, if you, don't think, if you think you can do this with, you, you pick somebody you believe in. You pick mm. something you believe in. See if you can build a case like we just built for Jesus in this book. You tell me if anyone, look, if I'm wrong and there's another historical figure who's had the kind of impact that Jesus has had on all of these very different aspects of human uh, history, please tell me who it is. That's my whole point, is that you can't do this with any other person who's lived on the planet now, that's not me trying to reconstruct something in my hopes that, well, it's not, no, it's just that you cannot make a case the way we do in person of interest for anyone else. Then if you can, great, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's the person we should be, but that's not on me. That's, that's on somebody who has to make that case. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a good response because it's like there, there's so many ways to eliminate someone and not, and only one way to include them. They have to actually match. And so you can't fit someone as the murderer in a murder that happened in California if they were in New York at that night. It's just you, well, you a lot of what we're doing here too is we, we are comparing Jesus to other known historical figures. Yeah. And yeah. you'll see I do this over and over again where I'll say, okay, if you think there's somebody else in the first century who had this kind of impact on X, uh, let's take a look at who those people yeah. would be. And you'll look at them all and go, "This no, actually, all those folks put together don't have the kind of impact that Jesus and his followers had on, on human history. Yeah. And that's why I'm, this is what's so unusual. Look, I've had people say, well, what kind of a case is that? Well, I already did a case. I've already looked at the reliability of Scripture in a book called Cold Case Christianity. So it's not as though I, 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 I'm just doing a thought experiment. If none of that stuff was true in cold case Christianity, you'd still be stuck with the Jesus of Nazareth that you know today. And there would still be good reason to believe he's something more than just an ancient peasant sage from the first century, given the kind of impact he's had on human history. Yeah. And I, I like that you mentioned that too, because um, maybe some people listening or watching are like, well, I read cold case Christianity and that argues for the reliability of the gospels and proves Jesus. And it's like, if everything there is false, here's how you can do it a different way. So these are two different approaches really of showing the importance and significance of Jesus from two perspectives, one with the evidence from within the New Testament and one right. from outside. So jumping one, into yeah, kind of- oh, yeah, outside go out approach and the other is an outside in approach. Right, right. So it's I, I love having both of these approaches, no matter who you're kind of talking to and arguing from different ways, really showing the complete robust picture of how to argue for the person of Jesus. Uh, all right, so looking at your framework, the fuse and the fallout, uh, one of the kind of fuse questions that you ask of uh, when it comes to this cold case that you're working is, okay, why did she get killed or why did she go missing in May of 2020 or whatever the month was? Why not June? Why not 1999? Why not 2001? Uh, how do you kind of go about trying to figure out why why then? What, what kind of questions are you looking for? Well, it is true that, that, that the um, timing of a murder can tell you as much about the identity of the killer as the location of a murder, let's say. Timing is important. Why does it happen when it happens? Sometimes there are certain preconditions that have to be met. So if I'm somebody who's thinking about this, well, number one, have we had a kind of a history, a violent history of, of, or, of, of, of interaction that people have witnessed? You can kind of see that, that the relationship is building toward a climactic bad end uh two you know what how is she killed are there certain pre do i need to purchase the weapons do i need to purchase the materials i'm going to use to dispose of the body i mean do i have to have certain conditions in place before i can do the murder so there are always going to be these precursor conditions that have to be met and once they are met you've got the window of opportunity is starting now, of course, you also have some end time uh, conditions that, that you might want to work in front of. So, for example, well, yeah, you know, she's going to have a visit from family members or or I, I, she's got a, a bill is due. I want to do this before the bill is due. Or in this case, uh, she's pregnant and I want to do this before either she's showing or can tell anybody else that she's pregnant. Well, now I've got like a deadline. And right. you have the preconditions have to be met, but then I've got a deadline. And that acts as the front and the end of a, a window of opportunity that's going to open and then close. And you've got to work within that window. Now, everyone's window, I call these red zones, everyone's red zone of opportunity is different depending on the nature of your suspect and the nature of your victim. But when you find that a certain suspect has certain preconditions that have to be met and then the window opens and a certain victim has certain things that window closes and you find that that person is murdered in that window, you probably have the right suspect related to that victim. So what we're looking at is kind of what is the red zone of opportunity. And you'll see that the history of, of humans, you know, as it leads up to the first century, really does open up a window of opportunity that really kind of ranged from about 29 AD to about, about 29 BC, rather, to about 70 AD or BCE and CE. But the point is, there's a window there of about 99 years. And I show you how, to, how I come to that conclusion by simply tracing three aspects of the fuse that lead up to the first century. And sure enough, what happens in that window? Well, we have a change in our calendar and there's a, a, a person born in that window, about right in the middle of that uh, 99 year window named Jesus of Nazareth. So I, I think that you know, that's at least inclines me to look carefully at that person. And if you look at everyone else who lived in that first century, just examine, I have a list of that in the last chapter where I say, okay, here's, here's everybody else. Every ruler of a nation, every philosopher, every poet, every, everyone who mattered to anyone. So I just, you know, just do a simple search. 
uh, people who matter in the first century or uh, famous people of the first century. Do it any way you want. Make a complete list. and Use as many sources as you want. Well, it turns out you probably won't recognize most of those names. And, and if you do, you'll look back and say, well, really, that's not the reason why we've reordered our calendar. That, that person, as important as they were, really didn't account for the, any monumental change, never established a worldview upon which we built the sciences or education or anything else. And then you've got Jesus, who never led a nation, who never was anybody that important, according to the world. Yeah. Yet everything is standing on his shoulders. Now, that's something I think is worth considering, at least. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I loved reading this because as I was reading the first chapter and you kind of brought up this question of like, why did the murder happen now? I, I immediately thought, well, that's always a question that's asked about Jesus is why did he show up on the scene then? Why not earlier? Why not later? And especially the objection is why not later when we have cell phones and disciples could record all the miracles of Jesus and post them on social media and surely everyone would believe then. And then I get to your second chapter and you go, okay, so why did Jesus show up now? Why not earlier? Why not later? I was like, wonderful. Yeah. He's going to answer this. So maybe I know you addressed a couple things there, but I would love to kind of maybe hear a little bit more on how to respond to this objection. Why not have Jesus show up now with cell phones where every miracle okay. can be recorded, so, share it on social media? Yeah. Because surely if you have video evidence, everyone is convinced by video evidence, right? <laughs> okay. So I know that people will push back on this a little bit, but, but a couple of weeks ago before the football season started, I'm a huge sports fan and a huge football fan. Do you remember that video of, of Tom Brady throwing the football into the uh, into the? There's a machine that throws footballs. He's okay. standing back and throwing about 20 yards, and he hits the machine right where it throws the football, and it tosses it back to him. And he throws it again, and it hits the machine right in that little bullseye, and it tosses it back to him. And then he puts the thing, you know, the ball down, and he says, "Let's go, you know, let's go, Bucks." And so <laughs> off he walks. And that was on video. And people, the first day that this was shot. I mean, I watch all the shows, right? I mean, this is, I'm, you know, I'll confess, if it's if it's a sports show, I'm probably already watching or listening to it on a podcast. Everyone was amazed at, this dude still got it. He's got pinpoint accurate. The next day, of course, he said it was all video magic. You know, magic. Of course, yeah. So none of it was true. Uh, but we all bought it the first day. I actually think that, that honestly, do you, if you saw something, if you saw a street magician, would that convince you he's God? I think it's actually, we're in a culture right now where no one believes anything. Right. I mean, how many movies do we see? I was watching a green screen production the other day. I think it was on Instagram. Somebody posted the video of this elaborate sci-fi background that's been superimposed over the green screen, just watching the actor walk from one part of the screen to the other and do all these things. And then when they did the green screen, everyone was like, oh my gosh, you swear she's actually in this environment. The whole time she's just been walking on a set that has a green screen. And, and I think that we're in a culture right now where I don't, I think it's very noisy. I don't know that, well, let's put it this way. I'm not convinced that a, a, an iPhone video would be compelling. I'm not convinced. Yeah. I'm not convinced that somebody who, who speaks the Beatitudes today would draw. It turns out there is a window of opportunity in which, and by the, not only that, if you do this at the right time in history, you will form the foundation upon which all the sciences will grow and develop until we have the technology for a phone. If you see the involvement of Jesus and his followers in the sciences, you'll fact quickly realize that a lot of the reason why we are where we are today right. is because he came when he came. And so I think a lot of this is putting the cart before the horse in some way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I would agree with you on that. And, and someone brought up this objection to me not that long ago. And I even created a short video where I kind of made a similar point of like, we are so skeptical of everything today. I mean, there's tons of videos on YouTube that show miraculous things that even I am skeptical of. I'm like, right. yeah, I believe in the miraculous, but no, nah, I don't think that's true. Well, hey, because we're this? just used to seeing everything. There are everything. tons of videos on, on YouTube in which miraculous things are allegedly being done in the name of Jesus. Right. And you don't believe them. Right, <laughs> and exactly. That's, and that, that's part of the problem, right? Is that we are skeptical by nature uh, and this is why when Jesus says that we um, must come to him like a child, I don't think he means you must be simple-minded. You must be easily fooled. You must be so gullible that you'll believe anything I say. I think what he means is you have to lay down your prideful arrogance that most adults have at some point. And we are now in a culture where everyone can be a TikTok influencer, an Instagram influencer. We are in the age of shameless arrogance at a level that it probably has uh, outpaced any other point in history. 
And, and so the last thing we are, 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 we're not willing to even lay down our own social media platform to believe something else. So I think that there's a reason why Jesus comes when he comes. And he, that, that allows uh, God to enter into his creation in a way that he can establish. And when you see in this book, I hope you'll see, the, the way in which Jesus impacts all of those areas of culture that even atheists think are the most important aspects of culture. Because that was my thinking, right? As a non-believer, I would have said, and I was an artist before I came on the scene as, an, as, a, as a detective, the things that mattered most to me were literature, art, music, education, and science. Uh, that, those are five of the six things I talk about in the fallout. None of those things would be the, what they are today without Jesus and his followers. I mean, I know that sounds like a bold statement, but I'm not reading backward into history. Simply do the homework. You'll see that the, really it's Jesus and the worldview he inaugurated and the followers who express that worldview robustly uh, who make a, a difference in culture. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we are where we are. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you you have done the homework. And that's one thing I appreciate here. And it's what we see in all of the books I think that you've done is I, I actually counted and I think there's about 50 pages of endnotes that you have and citations okay, at the end of this thing. pages of endnotes that you see there are only the endnotes that we put in that we thought would fit. So if you look <laughs> at our, the book, the endnotes start. And I see, I don't have my glasses. On page 279. Yeah, two, 259 they, is the first page of endnotes. Okay. And so there's 50 pages of endnotes. There are 279 more pages of endnotes in a PDF file that's attached to the, that's online. You can download it. And the reason why we pushed those out is that I wanted to be able, when I say that there are, I draw an image of all of the scientists of the Enlightenment or all the post-Darwin scientists or scientists in the 21st century, um, I want to give you the list of all those scientists. There's 950 of them with their disciplines and what they are, the founder or initiator. Well, that's not in the book. That's 279 pages that's online. And so a lot of what people have said is, hey, you know what, the PDF file is actually a book. It is a book. Uh, it's larger. There's more words in the case notes than there are in the written text. But I also don't, I mean, you have to have a foundation upon which to present a case. So, but if you look at how cases are presented to juries, and, and uh, there's just a case that was presented downtown Los Angeles on the Robert Durst case. I was just involved very, very small, 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 small way in helping with the closing. Well, I will tell you that if you look at the number of months that they spent putting that case on, well, then it comes down to a three-hour closing argument. Hmm. Now, what I like to write in books are closing arguments. But you have to have you know the weeks and weeks of All evidence right. that you put on. And that's in the... In the, in the case notes. Yeah. So you, you don't build a closing argument without first doing the investigation. But in the end, I, I don't think many people are, I'm not an academic. I, I have no interest in writing academic books. I, I want to make closing arguments. And so in order to do that, you have to do your homework, but that's, that's not the kind of thing I want to have. And you, you don't go through all of the evidence all over again in your closing argument. Right. You summarize and you right. try to be persuasive in your summaries. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do with books like this. Awesome. Yeah. And it is a good summary. And the, for those who are just joining a uh, person of interest right here, and I, I have to show you, um, this is what we're talking about is the drawings. There's the, the, <laughs> you can expect this in all of his books where he has drawn, um, like every single face. I mean, if I could get that closer without it getting too blurry of all the different scientists and the different periods and, uh, the modern period and late modern period and others. And here are all the fathers of different academic wow. disciplines within scientific disciplines. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. So if anything, this is a great resource. If like, if you're like, hmm, who are some Christian scientists, which I just had a challenge about and I made a video on, on TikTok, uh, and I listed a few and, and then other people are like, well, you forgot to name this person. You forgot to name this oh, person. Yeah. It's like, man, the, the list yeah. is massive. We can name a ton of people. So, um, okay. Well, I want to get to some of the fallout, but I think it's an important point that you make as well of of you talk about a crime scene and, and and kind of the easier the crime if you just steal five dollars off the street you're gonna have a much shorter fuse to look at but the bigger the crime if you're robbing a bank there should be a lot more stuff leading up to that that kind of right. indicates and so when you see jesus we only talked about one little aspect of the cultural aspect that made that red zone uh but there's other aspects that jim goes into in this book talking about the the significance of this fuse and i'm just kind of curious before we kind of switch over to the fallout is there anything else that you kind of want to mention from the fuse that you think is significant before getting to the fallout 
Well, a lot of this too, when you ask, well, why does some Jesus come when he comes? I mean, a lot of this is cultural. A lot of this comes the, the kind of the, the, the history of nation building that precedes the first um, century. You know, it's in that it, uh, sequences of nations that small advancements are made so that when Jesus shows up, it turns out that his story can be easily communicated and can then advance across the globe. Uh, that's going to require, number one, uh, a sense of common or of, of, of advanced language. Of, uh, and for example, if you're using cuneiforms or pictographs to illustrate the story of Jesus in the Gospels, you are going to have a hard time being specific enough to communicate ideas and the specificity you see in the New Testament. But by the time the Etruscan alphabet is adopted by the Roman Empire, you now have enough vowels, the kinds of vowels that we use today, to be able to make distinctions between words that are only just really uh, separated by their vowel structures. So you can get much more complex concepts once you've got an alphabet and you have a, a Greek language that's spoken in the empire that ends up being the common language. And you even have the technology of, it sounds like it's not much technology, but it really is, uh, to have papyrus rolls where you can actually write something that has some ability to travel. And then you have the situation where you have a structure and an infrastructure in place that allows people like Paul to travel the roads described in the book of Acts that were not available to him not that long before Paul was mm -hmm. born. Because it was during that Pax Romana 200-year period of peace that the resources that had been spent on war could be tr discharged and, and actually dispatched into the construction of roads and bridges and tunnels. One of the great things about the Romans was they really wanted to trans road structure often was about transporting military machinery, right? So you can get your armies into the furthest reaches of the empire. And that meant they, they couldn't make strong turns, you know, sharp turns are not something you can take your military infrastructure, cannot make those kinds of turns. So they decided to go through mountains rather than around them over uh, rivers rather than to try to find the smallest crossing. And so bridge and tunnels construction was really uh, advanced under the Roman Empire. And it's those kinds of, that expression that every road leads to Rome. Well, if you're building a system in place that is so connected that even the Silk Road from Asia connects into your system, you now have access to places that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And now the message of Jesus can travel. There's a window of opportunity before the Pax Romana closes that you can actually work in. And when you overlap the prophetic fuse and the cultural fuse and the spiritual fuse, that's when you get that small moment of opportunity. Remember that the prophets said that the Messiah would come before the destruction of the temple, according to Daniel. So Daniel says that, well, that means you've got an end condition of 70 AD hmm. and you have to have certain, pre so that's why you get this red zone of opportunity. And I don't think that many, I, I don't, I don't know that anyone else, if I'm not, could be as ignorant of the literature and maybe that somebody else has identified that red zone the way I did. But for me, uh, years ago, I'm, I mean, talking, when I first saw this, it was probably, well, 24 years ago. I, I, you know, there's so much I wanted to write about in Cold Case, but it's your first book and, and you just know you have to be succinct. Yeah. So I stayed inside the Gospels. But I actually think that as I was examining what's in Scripture and out of Scripture, because I was such a uh, skeptic of Scripture, that I was actually more moved by the stuff that was you could discover in studying history than I was in the stuff I, I discovered studying Scripture. You know, I just didn't I didn't believe what was in the Scripture. But but in the end, uh, that's why I think the case for a lot of us who um, maybe are number one, I, I had some background in those things that are outside of scripture, because that's the stuff you study at school. I mean, I, I, I read more pagan mythologies before I read the New Testament. I, I knew much more about the pagan mythologies than I do about Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So it's easier for me to kind of stay in that camp. You know, why would those mythologies bear certain similarities? Well, that's a question you can think about before you ever encounter Jesus. So, so there's stuff you can discover outside of scripture that I think is, is, was helpful for me as somebody who was not, I didn't own a Bible and I wasn't really interested in buying one. Yeah. So one of the questions I had for you, kind of based on what you were just saying right there on the language aspect and development of the alphabet and everything like that, is what about all of the historical figures that we do have, like from the Old Testament, that we didn't have kind of this Greek uh, alphabet and language to spread easily, but it is written in like an ancient Hebrew, yet we still know things about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all these different characters. Um, how is it, like, what kind of, like, wouldn't it have been possible for Jesus? Like, wasn't the language developed enough then? Why are you saying it's only now in the red zone that the language is developed enough for Jesus to come when it yes, had here's Hebrew what I'm before not that? Saying. 
What I'm not saying is that um, there was no other sophisticated language before the Etruscan language and the, and the Greek, uh, you know, uh, common speaking language. I'm not saying that at all. I'm also not saying that there were no roads before the Romans built roads or there was no postal system. The Persians had great roads and a great uh, postal system. The problem was they didn't have access to the geography that the Romans did. So, yes, if, if I'm staying within a small community, which is small geographically, then I had some, but it didn't travel beyond those, those borders. So here's what Rome does. Rome comes and conquers the entire region, everything that the Egyptians, the Persians, the Jews, all of this region adopts one language that, that is sophisticated enough to actually travel and then unites an entire empire with a language, technology, roads, and an and alphabet that is complex enough. And it's not just a pocket. The, the stuff that, that the Persians did, for the most part, stayed in Persia. Yeah. But when the Romans came into power, now the Persians were speaking those were actually familiar with the Roman, uh, all the roads connected from Rome and all of the language and technology that had at Rome had access was also be, uh, experienced in other regions of the world. Whereas before, if you had whatever you were speaking in Egypt, stayed in Egypt, whatever you were doing in Persia, stayed in Persia. But then the Romans kind of conquer all of it and unify. So now the message can go in places it couldn't go before. Yeah, that's a helpful clarification. So, um, all right. So what we tried to do here uh, is really show um, here's kind of what led up to this event. And just like you do in a crime scene of saying, OK, what are the significant things that took place that led up to why this person got murdered on this day? And these are kind of start to give you clues on the significance of that day. And then the second aspect that you talk about here in the book is the fallout. Now, what are things that took place after that might point back to uh, who did this crime? So when it comes to like a, a crime scene and what you describe here in the book of, of the example that you use, uh, what would be uh, crime scene examples of fallout that would get, you know, even though you don't have evidence of the crime when you begin your search, what is, how, how does some of that fallout point back to a specific person? Yeah, so so I, let's just go to the Durst case because it's the most it's a common case. It's not my case. It, the, the people I worked with as in the DA's office are handling that case, so it's not it wasn't in my jurisdiction. But the Durst case is pretty famous, and people are following it. And a, a, a show called The Jinx on HBO featured Robert Durst, and so a lot of people know that case. A good example: he killed his wife uh, back in 1981, and they never found her body. So what do you? So what happens in that case is a very, very, very typical of other kinds of fallout cases. Well, you know, if I think my, my wife has run off, I, I have an expectation. Why would I not have an expectation she might return? Especially to return to get her stuff. Right. So if she doesn't, re if, if, if a week after she's run off, I am now destroying all of her stuff and acting as though she's never coming back. Well, why would I do that unless I know for some reason that she's never coming back? Yeah. And why do I have that? Am I also doing those things that would uh, help me to cover up any involvement I might have in this? Because, you know, think about it. If your wife really ran off, you would be doing things like, for example, calling the police all the time. Hey, have you heard anything? Is yeah. anything going on? Do I need to hire an investigator? Like, what do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do to find her. I'm, I'm panicked about this. You'd be talking to your friends about it. Well, none of that activity is happening. As a matter of fact, you're going on with your life. You've got a new girlfriend right away. Her stuff's already in the trash. You've moved on. You've back to, you know, it's a, from your perspective, she might as well be dead. Well, okay, if you're acting as though you know she's dead, when you've told everyone she just ran off, that's the kind of behavior that'll be in the fallout that we will start to, you know, what, what is it if you discovered, oh, actually, she had a really important appointment that she was just looking for and telling everyone she was looking forward to. Even if she had run off, she probably would have contacted that person to explain why she's not meeting him or would have met that person anyway. As a matter of fact, it was an appointment for a job. So if she is going to run off, she's going to need a job to pay her bill. So why wouldn't she make that appointment for the job? Oh, she never made that appointment. These are the kinds of things you see in the fallout that indicate, number one, this is probably not a missing. This is probably a murder. And number two, if you're acting as though you know she's dead, when in fact she, she, you shouldn't know she's dead, that's a good tip that you probably are involved. So yeah. that's the kind of stuff we're looking at in, uh, in post behavior that is uh, that is suspicious and inclines us to believe you're involved. All right. So, Jim, I got a question that's kind of off topic, but uh, it just popped into my head. And so I don't know exactly if I know how to phrase this, but my wife and I watched a TV show the other day where uh, a crime takes place. And uh, we immediately, you know, because I think we're so used to TV shows, uh, we, we, we're always looking for that plot twist or like, yeah. oh, but then this person probably did this. But then, it, and so we start right. and like, and, and it just made that. me, yeah. and it made me stop and say like, 
Is this normal? Like, are most cases you work like pretty straightforward, or like are are there as many plot twists and and f- holes filled as we expect crime scenes and and cases to take place as we see in TV shows, or is that just oh, in, ab- entertainment? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They're all twisted. So so nothing's ever clean. If it was clean, it wouldn't be cold. It would have got solved twenty five years ago. Okay. The reason why it's not clean when I get it is because it wasn't clean to begin with. It wasn't that obvious. And that's these are the kinds of cases I specialize in. And and I will tell you. They are always dicey. Like when you make this case, and I've had a case like this where I, I, I don't think the family of the deceased was even convinced she was dead. They didn't want to believe she was dead. So they would far rather have believed anything that the defendant said because it kept their daughter alive. If they believed that he killed her, then they have to admit for the first time in decades that their daughter is dead. Hmm. And they were just hoping, you know what, I don't know why she left us. But she must have a better life someplace else. So I, you know, and I, I know he would never do that. He's he's become like a son to us. In her in her absence, this is like the son we never had. Hmm. This is exactly how they saw him, and so it was very difficult to convince them. And these cases are so convoluted, and they 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 it can kind of feel at times like um, it can kind of feel like um, like it's a sixty forty proposition, right? And you're thinking, no, I know this. He he did it, but I can see how you could rationalize some of the behaviors, and it feels like. And there's always a ton of unanswered questions that people have that I can't answer. How did he do it? When did he do it? Where did he put her? How did he move her body? How did he move her car? How did? What do you tell the kids? He did it in the house where the kids were there. How did he do it in the house while the kids are there and they never even heard it? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know how he did it, but I know that he did it. So now we get to the end and we convict this guy. And no one believes us. They don't. The prosecutor, of course, is with me. He, we know. But the defense attorney, of course, thinks, no, my guy's innocent. His family, of course, thinks he's innocent. Her family, the deceased's family, thinks he's innocent. Keith Morrison on Dateline thinks they're all innocent. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, at the sentencing a month later, Knucklehead con- confessed to it and gave us right. the location of the body. So were we right? Yes. Were there a ton of open questions? And at times, did it feel like a 60-40? Yes. I only say all of this is because when people look at the case for Jesus in this book, I think one of the questions that's fair to ask, was well, it possible you're absolutely wrong about all of this? There's still some open questions I have. Oh, yeah, it's possible I'm wrong. I would have told you it was possible I was wrong about that defendant when I did that case, too. But it's not reasonable that I'm wrong, and that's the standard. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's right. beyond a reasonable doubt. So, are there? If you I, I always yes, are there questions that cannot be answered in every criminal case? Yes, and there'll be questions you might have when you study the case for any historical figure. I mean, you've not seen that now. Now it feels like I don't know who to trust when someone is writing about a historical figure, right? I mean, I don't know. Has that story been slanted because that author's got an angle he wants us to believe? Was the country founded on these principles or on those principles? It kind of depends on who you read, right? Who do I trust in all of this? So I get it. There, I think there are questions we could always ask about any history that we trace. But remember, the standard is not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a little lower. And I, I have to trust that all of this circumstantial evidence that points to a certain inference, I have to trust that, that is, that's reasonable unless there's other evidence otherwise. Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way. I may not have every piece of evidence I wish I had, but I probably have enough to infer a proper conclusion. So I may not be able to answer every question the jury has. I need more evidence for that. And this is the way these cases are. You don't get every piece you'd like. So even this case for Jesus, you may have open questions still, but there's more than enough evidence to reach a proper inference. Yeah, I, I like the way that you say that. I say something similar in my class when we cover the evidence for the authority of Scripture. It's like, look, this this evidence doesn't prove that the Bible's inspired, authoritative Word of God, but it gives enough evidence to where I think a reasonable, open-minded person will give it the benefit of the doubt and go, man, there, there's something here uh, to look into. So, all right, we have understood yeah. a little bit of what a fallout is. You've solved my curiosity yeah. about watching TV shows where there are crime yeah. scenes, and I feel like, nah, that's that's too unreasonable. Um, you have a, a few different pieces of fallout out that you point to back to Jesus. Now, I love talking about science, and so I'm going to jump to the science one. It's not the first one you bring up, but I want to talk about that one. Um, Obviously, a common objection is, well, the science proves that God doesn't exist. And a response is like, well, we wouldn't even have science today as we understand it without Christianity. And here you say specifically Jesus. So uh, what is the science fallout, and how is this pointing back to uh, Jesus having this impact when he did in the first century? 
Yeah, you know, think about that that first part of the claim, right? Which is like, you know, you know uh, science proves that God doesn't exist. Well, I, I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene, which I think just the opposite is true. I think actually that's a, that's a book that uses science and philosophy to prove the existence of God from just the state of the universe the way it is today. And so you can see, you know, how do we discover what's in the universe? Well, we use the sciences to do that. So the more we know about the science of biology, about the origin of life, the more you really have to kind of incline yourself toward a mind, which is the source of all of information and DNA. But aside from all that, what's interesting about the history of science is that if I and how this, you know, when you first start investigating this, this is fuse and fallout. So fuse and fallout by its very nature is timeline investigations. As a matter of fact, when I told the publisher, and the publisher had no idea what I'm doing, right? I mean, they're like, what, what, what's your next book on? Well, I'm going to use a, I, I, how do I say that? Like, I didn't want to spend the next 20 minutes describing the book for these folks. And I knew I didn't need to do that. But I just said, I'm going to use an investigative timeline to demonstrate the historicity and deity of Christ. And they're like, oh, okay. No idea what that is. Well, okay, fuse and fallout really is an investigative timeline, right? You're looking at the timeline preceding the, the, the murder and then the timeline following the murder. So I just charted out a timeline of 4,000 years. Let's go back 4,000 years and let's take a look at the advancement of the sciences. You know, the very earliest stages are just going to be the foundational mathematics and philosophies you're going to use to do science. But eventually, uh, scientists natural philosophers are going to emerge in history and then in every century you're going to have more or less of these and so i just started looking at well who are the natural philosophers or scientists century by century that are known to us in historical records and what you'll see is a growth on the curve of more and more science i guess from your perspective on the camera here it's the opposite <laughs> way the time progresses there's this growth and i just started to identify the people that are in each century well, where does Jesus fall in that chart? Well, he falls right before the growth of, of the scientific project. Now, is that a coincidence? Could be. Or is he a catalyst in some way? Is there something about the worldview inaugurated by Jesus of Nazareth that lays the foundation for uh, exploration of the natural world? And I think there are actually, I give them, I think, six or seven reasons why I think Jesus and his worldview ignite science, especially when compared to other ancient worldviews that were held before Jesus. So you see this growth of science. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th century, and they call this the scientific revolution because there was science being done prior to that, and there's science being done since then. But that is the 200-year period in which every major modern category of science is founded, inaugurated, and explored for the first time in depth, right? So you'll see that the fathers of astronomy, chemistry, biology, they're usually uh, described in that range of time or before, depending on when these disciplines were uh, were initiated. So I, I had a research assistant. I just wanted to collect names. Like I had an article, I think, also online that I wrote years ago that maybe had a 100 thinkers, philosophers, scientists that were super smart and were Christ followers. I just wanted to demonstrate you don't have to turn your mind off in order to be a Christ follower. But I only had maybe a 100 on that list. Well, by the time we got done researching it, now again, it's not easy to identify the religious beliefs of important scientists throughout history is not. Right. So there are times when I couldn't tell you what this guy's religious beliefs are, so I'm just gonna have to leave it out. But for those who I could identify as people who have are Christ followers in one way or another, those guys and gals made it into my list. And, and that's just gonna be tip of the iceberg stuff because I can't always identify someone's religious beliefs in whatever's been written about them. But 950 scientists later, um, I can see now what the, who's who in the zoo. And so I started to look, and we noticed along the way that, that a couple of times we started to see, well, this person's being identified as a father or founder or mother of a certain discipline. And I thought, oh, man, we should have started writing those down. So we went back and did it a second time. And now we're just drawing out the people who are called fathers of their disciplines. And we identified those in the book. And the reason why we did that is because it turns out that those people are they're dominated. The sciences are dominated by Christ followers. It's just, there's no other way to put it. But Muslims also had a huge impact on the sciences until like the 12th century or so. And then for whatever reason, they kind of drop off. And there's been a, some, a, some speculation about why that might be so. There's actually a book called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. But a lot of it is grounded, I think, in the theology that the imams held related to the Quran. That, you know, if the Quran describes the world the way it really is, then you discover something that's not in the, if you have to compare one to the other, well, the Quran's always going to trump. So why even bother over here? Hmm. 
And I think that general view of the primacy of the Quran ended up slowing down their, their involvement in the sciences. But on the Christian side, it exploded until by the time you get into the scientific revolution, it is virtually all Christ followers of one form or another who are involved as leaders in the sciences, even as establishing the scientific academies, uh, being involved in universities, founding universities, all this stuff is happening by Christ followers. Now, the objection, of course, is, well, look, in 16th, 17th century Europe is Christian. So, duh. But my, here's my point. Why is science taking off in Christendom in Europe in the 16th and 17th century? Well, it can easily happen in Asia. It can be happening in a pocket of Persia. Why is it all happening in Europe? Why is it in, in Christendom that science explodes? There is something about the Christian worldview that is an igniter for this kind of activity. That's what I try to explore in that chapter. But here's what's really cool. If you look at all of the science fathers, these folks not only wrote about the sciences, and I'm talking about from, you know, the father of, of astronomy, father of chemistry, father of modern chemistry, modern biology, father of quantum mechanics, father of computer sciences. If you look at all these folks, they're, Christ, they're Christians, they're Christ followers. And they wrote about Jesus in their personal journals. And if all you had were the personal journals of the top scientists in the history of science, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus pretty robustly. As a matter of fact, you can re reconstruct the story of Jesus. There's more data to mine out of the science fathers than there even is to mine out of the church fathers. Now, if you think about that, that's pretty remarkable, right? Now, again... The question is not, well, this, this is not first century evidence for Jesus outside of the New Testament. That's not what this is. What this is, is to demonstrate that why is this dude the inspiration, not just for the sciences, but for modern education, both higher education and lower education, for art, for music, for literature, for even other global religions that all hat tip Jesus in one way or another. Why is this guy, of all the people who could be in the first century, forget about that, of all the deities who have ever been mentioned in the history of humanity, forget about that, all the world leaders who have ever reigned or ruled an empire, how is it that none of them serve as the inspiration in these categories of, of culture, yet Jesus does? This little nobody, that, that's, that's the thing that I think has to give us pause, right? And so when you add that impact that Jesus had and the fact that his fingerprints are all over the landscape in modern in our modern world and in the history, you could not destroy the story of Jesus by simply destroying the New Testament. You'd have to destroy kind of the history of literature because no one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. That's just the way it is. Uh, you'd have to destroy the history of arts because no one's inspired more artists in every genre and every region of the world than Jesus of Nazareth. You have to destroy the history of music because you can construct the story of Jesus just from hymns in the first four centuries and no one has had a bigger impact. No one has been sung about more, no historical figure than Jesus of Nazareth. You have to destroy the history of of, of, of education because you could actually just visit the top 15 universities in the world and examine their buildings and charters and reconstruct the story of Jesus from the physical campuses and charters of the top 15 universities in the world today. In other words, you'd have to do a lot more than destroy the New Testament to destroy the story of Jesus. You'd destroy his fingerprints everywhere else you'd find them. And it turns out, as an atheist, those are the things that matter most to me. Right? Art, literature, music, education, science, and all of those stand on the shoulders of this ancient Jewish sage from that small area of the Roman Empire, born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, only three years to do his ministry, only traveled about 200 miles, no family of his own, raised in a poor family, no education like the, like the, the rulers of the same country had, no country that he ever ruled, no army he ever led, no music he ever wrote, no book he ever wrote. This is the guy. This is the guy who changes everything. How could that be? Now, I just think that if you, if you thought, well, look, if I throw this little pebble into the pond, it's going to create a tidal wave. Well, no, it's not. It's going to, it's a small pebble. It's going to create small ripples. But this pebble when thrown in the pond creates the kind of tidal wave you would expect God to create if he enters into his creation. And that's why I think there's something about Jesus that merits a, a deeper look.
And again, what you kind of mentioned there in the book of the example of the fuse and the fallout, right? You're going to have a greater fallout, the greater the explosion, so to speak, and, and the bigger the impact this person has. Now, I, I love how you brought up the objection. Uh, I got the same objection about, well, of course, they're all Christians. Everyone had to be a Christian at the threat of punishment or whatever. And, and my response is like, look, why the person's a Christian to me is irrelevant. It's were they acting on Christian beliefs or did they just so happen to be a Christian who did these things? And so you mentioned a couple times kind of the fingerprints of Jesus and the, and it's the teachings of Jesus that maybe led to this. So what would be kind of some of those distinctives of why we see this happening around the person of Jesus and, and a Christian worldview leading sure. to the scientific discovery? You kind of mentioned a little bit about Islam, but what are the distinctives of Christianity? Well, okay, so just keep in mind, you've got to look at what, what was preceding uh, Christianity that would maybe inhibit the exploration of science. Number one, Christianity elevates the role of material, the material world. It is not a dirty thing that you're to be opposed. A lot of philosophers, and I list these in the book, who preceded Jesus had a, had a view of the matter that was either unworthy of examination or wasn't real, that real ideas and ideals were real and non-material uh, entities, but not the material world, and it was not worth examining. But under Christendom, we are not just resurrected as um, uh, 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 disembodied spirits. We, we have a resurrection body. That we will be, uh, we will have in the next life. There's a, a material aspect that still. That's how high matter is elevated in in another Christian worldview. It's not just that though. Under a, a kind of a pantheistic or a a, a, dual, a, a a polytheistic worldview, those gods were very disorderly. All the, the the images of gods that preceded Jesus, if you look at them, they're pretty disorderly. They're usually drunken, stealing the girlfriends and stealing the lives of, of the people who they've created. I mean, it's it's pretty debaucherous, and but and they're not orderly. But under Christendom, there is a one singular orderly God who has created the universe, but is not part. He is separate from his creation and orderly. And that allows us then to look at his creation and, and imagine that there will be an orderly structure to creation based on the nature of our singular orderly God. And let's think about this. The whole adventure of science under a Christian worldview is an exploration of the natural realm. Now, there are two ways that God reveals himself, right, under Christendom. One is by special revelation of the book. The other is through the natural revelation of the world around us. Of course, special revelation is closed. There's no one's going to add to the book. But natural revelation is the thing we can still explore to learn more about God, to think, as Kepler says, God's thoughts after him. And so it's not so much that you might be a geeked out as a physicist and you like physics. But if you saw your exploration of physics as an act of holy worship to a God who created as the creator of physics, your engagement in physics is different, right? Because it's a passionate act of worship. These are some of the catalysts that actually initiate a, 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 another one of these, for example, is this idea that... Um, Remember that the modern education starts in monasteries where you had a, a monastic system like the, uh, that, that eventually emerges into the cathedral schools and then eventually emerges into the three first modern universities as we know universities today. Not to say that there weren't other ancient institutions of learning that weren't Christian. Of course, there were. But the modern university that you're thinking of today in which a body of students is, is taught by a faculty of, of professors and they are advanced through, through several years until they receive a diploma which certifies their graduation that is a very modern notion and it begins in three universities all founded by christians at, at bologna paris and oxford so all of this is, is a system in place and by the way most science is done at least early science was done at the university level which were the creations of christians so it just advanced the cause of the sciences but remember even in the monastic systems uh, monks were not afraid to get their hands dirty. And those who thought that matter was unworthy of our interaction from a worldview were not likely to get their fingers dirty. You know, autopsies and stuff were done early in Christian universities because this came out of a system in which monks were not afraid to get their fingers dirty. They weren't afraid to get, they would obviously often get involved in manual labor. So it wasn't remembered that the first scientists were known as natural philosophers. In other words, they would think about the nature of the natural realm, but they weren't yet engaged in physical experiments to really explore the nature of the natural realm. 
And so a, a monastic system that, in which you're constantly manipulating matter and not afraid to get your hands dirty is the kind of place where now cadaver studies start to appear. And people are actually taking a look to see what's really going on in there. Now have to think about, I can actually dissect this and figure out what's happening. And that's, that is another thing that's encouraged under a Christian worldview. So there were a number of reasons that uh, the sciences were ignited by a worldview that was distinct from its predecessors. And remember that even under an Islamic worldview, that is still within a kind of a uh, monotheistic tradition that springs out of Judaism and uh, acknowledges Christianity and then moves from there. But remember, Christianity under this system was competing with other philosophies that made it more difficult or discouraged the study of the material realm. So we touched on, I think, a lot right here uh, uh, of how science is also built into education, which you cover in the book. And you mentioned imagination and music and the arts and a lot of stuff here. We got like five minutes left. And so I'm just kind of curious, you know, what would is there something that as you kind of looked at the different aspects of Fallout, um, is there anything that stood out, surprised you that really pointed back to Jesus that maybe you weren't aware of or most people aren't aware of that you want to share kind of in our last five minutes? Well, a couple of things. Let me address an objection I just heard the last couple of days that I think is, is a good one. Um, and then I'll also talk about what surprised me in the fall. Objection first. So the objection I heard recently was, well, look, it, it, when you, for example, I looked at all the different mythologies that lead up to Jesus. And you'll see about 15 characteristics that are common between the mythologies that then are their most robust uh, embodiment in the person of Jesus. And one of the things that was mentioned, I think, is that, look, there's a lot of kind of dirtiness in the mythologies also, debauchery, sexual promiscuity. And that kind of debauchery and sexual promiscuity, I did not list, and, and it does not appear in the person of Jesus. Wouldn't you want to, if you're thinking of the gods, you're imagining the gods to be a certain way, but you also imagine them to be sexually promiscuous, wouldn't you want the fullest embodiment of God? Wouldn't you want to match those expectations? But here's what's great about it. It turns out that, no, I think that, that the holy, that the righteousness of those mythologies is personified in Jesus without any of the debauchery. Hmm. And I think that that exclusion of those similarities is what validates and separates Jesus. So in other words, he takes your expectations of the ancients, he elevates them and embodies them in the most robust ways, but he leaves behind and then he comes and he preaches an ethic this is, if you've even thought about, you know, sinning against your, uh, with a woman, you've already done it. In other words, he separates out all the debauchery and he leaves you no room for that. So I think what he does is he elevates our imagination. God doesn't just accommodate and meet everything we could possibly imagine, but he straightens out and, and, and he sanctifies our imagination in the person of Jesus. Now, as far as the stuff that I see that in the fallout that was the most surprising, well, I will tell you that I was probably most surprised. Look, I don't think people think people realize that that Jesus, uh, well, look, any system of theology that appears after Jesus in the timeline, don't be surprised that Jesus is mentioned. If you're Baha'i, of course, Baha'i, Baha'u'llah mentions both Muhammad and he mentions Jesus. He incorporates Jesus into his worldview so that the Baha'is all have a sense of who Jesus is from their own worldview. Islam incorporates Jesus as a prophet in their worldview. Yes, if a system follows Jesus, but what's surprising is even the systems that preceded Jesus is um, Buddhism and Hinduism and um, you know Krishna and these things, as they moved into the common era, they began to adapt and merge and mention Jesus in a way that was consistent with their own worldview so that Buddhist leaders, Hindu leaders, they will find themselves describing Jesus as somebody who would fit well within their system, somebody on the way to enlightenment, somebody who's a wise teacher, who embodies the principles of their system. In other words, everyone loves Jesus on that side of the timeline and want to incorporate him in some way. Here's what's interesting. Jesus, although there were deities that preceded him, never gives them any homage. He never hat tips them. Everyone says, hey, you can include Jesus over here. Jesus says you can't include any of them over here. Hmm. I am the only way to the Father. And I often say this, that when you work a set of suspects, like seven suspects, at some point, one is going to emerge uniquely with unique motive, with unique opportunity, with unique skill sets that makes him your suspect, where the other six or seven, they don't have those attributes. They're kind of common in that sense. This guy stands apart. Same thing as similar is happening here with Jesus. He stands apart from the rest. They all acknowledge him, 
They all say you must do these things to be united to God or to reach the next level or to have whatever the best that system offers. Jesus says, no, it's nothing you can do. It's everything I did for you. That, that difference is unique. And I think it's another thing that really points. If you're a seeker, if you're a spiritual seeker, wherever you are, whoever it is you're following, you might want to look at Jesus of Nazareth because you probably already know something about him from your religious worldview, even though it may not be Christian. Yeah, wow. Well, that is so fascinating. And my goodness, we have barely scratched the surface to talk about yeah. some of the things that you've included in this book in this hour. So Jim, just thank you so much for the hard work, the dedication you put into this, the, the ministry that you have of making videos on YouTube and speaking around the country and making the case for Christianity. There's lots of links below if you're watching on YouTube in the description of all that Jim is doing. So Jim, thanks for coming on for your fourth or fifth time. I think it's your fourth. I think I broke up in a show, but your fourth time. Thank you for being a great repeat guest and helping educate me as well as everybody else. Well, Ryan, you're doing great work. And you know, I always am willing to come on your show. So please ask me again. Absolutely, I will. And hey, when's your next book coming out? Well, that's <laughs> two more years. Every two years, you got to do something, right? <laughs> I get bored. I got to do All right. something. I know this one came out yesterday. You got to get back to work, Jim. What do you, you can't that's sit right. around and just right. wait. <laughs> All right, well, thank that's you right. so much. All right, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, that was just, again, as I mentioned, uh, barely scratched the surface of amazing, interesting, easy to read, very fascinating content in this book. I love how Jim is tied in the evidence for Jesus, as well as uh, the stories that he has solved and teaching you how to do that. So definitely check out that book description and or information in the description below. The next time I'm going live is the 30th of September. That'll be a Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time uh, for the end of the month Q&A. So you can uh, bring your questions there. You can always start to send them in early. You can follow on social media. Uh, you can email them, text them in. i uh, love to start getting those questions and have a good fun show discussing the things that you want to talk about. As always, other interviews will pop up here on the side. And I pray that you have a wonderful rest of your great rest of your day. Uh, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. Your love will guide my